Hi, this is Joel Schumacher. Uh, thanks for your interest in 8mm. Uh, I hope to make this interesting for you. Um, this script was sent to me by Columbia, um, and I've been a fan of Andrew Kevin Walker's work, and uh, this really grabbed me because I'd never seen this movie before. And, um, you know, a lot of scripts in Hollywood all seem like hybrids or very much like films we've seen already. And this was really unique. And I thought it was dangerous. And, and I like to make trouble sometimes. And um, this was shot by uh, Robert Ellswit, who is um, a great cinematographer and a wonderful human being. And, and um, I first uh, saw his work in Hard Eight and then he did Boogie Nights and several other films, but um, I was really lucky to get him. This is the Miami airport where we started shooting. Uh, we just missed a hurricane, and there's my friend, the great Nicolas Cage, who is, uh, I think, probably in his age group, this is going to get me in a lot of trouble, but probably in his age group, I think he might be the greatest American character actor right now. And um, I needed Nick because he's fearless and he'll go anywhere. And this is a film that needed to go places that a lot of actors would not want to go for their image or that they wouldn't be squeaky clean or presenting a user-friendly um, image to the public. And so... Those of you who've seen Nick's work before knows, know that he'll just go where the story needs to go and where his character needs to go, and he doesn't care if his hair looks good or if there's snot running out of his nose. That woman who just passed is one of the most beautiful women in the world. She's Cuban, and that was in Miami. Gary Wisner did the production design. Uh, he's a young man. I first saw his work in the pilot for Millennium, uh, Chris Carter, the great X-Files genius, uh, has also developed a show, Millennium, and uh, Gary did the pilot, and that's where I saw his work. And this is a set that we built, uh, kind of Art Deco set. And putting this movie together was pretty interesting, because I've been around a long time, and, you know, come from the street and had a lot of drug problems in my youth and you know I've been out there and I thought I was pretty sophisticated and pretty jaded at um, my ripe old age but uh, doing the research for this film getting to the world of illegal pornography was um, you know there's a line that comes up later in the film that um, Joaquin Phoenix says uh, that there are things you'll see that once you see them you can't ever unsee them and there are some things that I think we saw in our travels people we met research that we did that I won't forget that I saw them and I guess I could have lived without seeing them but it was important to try to be accurate in doing the film um, this house was in uh, upstate New York, and 
Here's one of my favorite actresses coming up, Catherine Keener. I don't know if any of you have ever seen a small independent film called Living in Oblivion, but it's one of my favorite films, and it's actually a film about making an independent film. So if you are film lovers, which I hope you are, um, I recommend this movie. This is a baby. Um, we shot this in the fall, in the, uh, started in the spring, February, sorry. And the weather was very cooperative because it had this blue gray haze to it. And I was trying to create different worlds in this movie. First, as you saw in Miami, there's a kind of technicolor juji fruit world. And, um, this was an attempt to recreate Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which is where Andrew Kevin Walker is from. And the blue uh, quality of the overcast skies and that kind of existential bleak feeling you get in long winters in the East was what I was trying to give you here because I knew that Nick was going to go to many different places from here. Uh, I think that um, the content of a movie should always dictate the form, but I think that form is also something that we really owe the audience, that um, I think we all enjoy films no matter what they look like, but if you can tell a good story, but also use the camera and the art direction and the lighting, to really tell the story with you, become part of the storyteller, then I think the audience, even if they don't notice it, has a better experience. I know it's always that way for me. And I try very much to give you a whole piece, almost like a piece of music that starts with a downbeat and ends when the piece of music is finished, but it all is of a piece, even though it has many different highs and lows to it. Uh, the music for this movie is by one of my favorite composers, Michael Dana, who's a young man who lives in Toronto. And Adam Agoyan, a great Canadian filmmaker who made Exotica and The Sweet Hereafter and many other great films, is a friend of mine. And I first noticed Michael's uh, great talent in his movies. And Michael hadn't done work in the Hollywood studio system. And I chose him because I knew that he would also take us to a place that you don't ordinarily go in the average mainstream film. This is a famous house in Long Island, the Phipps Estate. And um, coincidentally, in our film, it's supposed to be the house of um, industrial steel magnet and um, I guess Mr. Phipps made all his money in steel so the punishment suits the crime this is not the inside of the Phipps house this is my bathroom no this is a set that Gary Wisner threw together in about two days and and it looks very elegant and and he did a wonderful job this is a great um, stage actress, Myra Carter. I don't know if she's ever been in a film before, but she 
won a lot of awards for her um, role in a play called Three Tall Women. And I also wanted to bring in some faces that you don't ordinarily see in, in the average film so that I, I wanted to take you, I, my, my real goal was to try to constantly keep taking you places you don't go in the average movie. And um, you'll tell me if I succeeded. Um, we caused, we got a lot of criticism from from some of the um, movie critics uh, that were laced with their moral indignation, and and uh, that that's always very amusing to me, because you know most people don't accept the Pope as their you know moral arbiter, or the uh, certainly not the President of the United States. Um, Many of us don't even accept our parents or our peers as a moral arbiter. So the concept of a movie critic being a moral judge is, is particularly amusing to me, especially since some of the ones on the media were just, you know, weather people the day before. Nothing against weather people, but I, I always feel it's the role of anyone who's doing creative work to um, cause trouble now and then. And I, I've... I've done that in the past, and I, I have to say I enjoy it because uh, it makes me laugh at the hypocrisy in our culture, which I guess we're all part of, and I'm sure I do it myself. I always thought I was the most liberal person in the whole world until I realized how much I hate people who aren't as liberal as I am, so obviously I'm a hypocrite also. Begins as a relatively sleazy bit of pornography. And this is Anthony Heald, who's playing the lawyer, um, who a lot of people will remember as the evil doctor in <laughs> Silence of the Lambs, who wound up being um, Anthony Hopkins' dinner. And um, he's a wonderful stage actor, also. This is probably an S&M film of some sort, simulated rape, simulated violence. Hard it's very difficult to do research on snuff films because obviously anybody who would ever be involved in something that heinous is not going to come out of the woodwork and say, oh, here we are, we make them. We have a large selection. So... Um, we had to go into the world of illegal porn, and, and for those of you who may not be as familiar with that term as we've become now, illegal pornography is not the shiny, glitzy boxes that you see in the adult section of your neighborhood video store with the beautiful blondes, with the you know tanning bed tans and the fake boobs. Um, this is what's considered illegal by the federal government, which is, of course, kiddie porn, um, bestiality, uh, rape, torture, uh, the combination of sex and violence. In the United States, you can have hardcore pornography or you can have simulated violence, but the combination of violence and sex together is illegal. The illegal pornography world, which is billions of dollars, is um, basically an under-counter business. And um, a lot of people claim it doesn't exist. But I think that's because 
they're in denial. Um, in fact, some of the reactions to this film, that these things don't go on, is really, to me, insane because uh, people show me images on the internet all the time that are shocking. And I think one of the biggest problems we're going to have in this country, I think we have already, is that this um, concept of policing the internet because obviously um, we want to keep children safe from um, this world. On the other hand, I don't know how it affects the First Amendment, and I'm glad I don't have to make those decisions. But I think this is going to be an increasing problem. A lot of the people who do illegal pornography um, claim they don't. So they're very loath to talk about anything. And so it's very difficult to get real information as far as snuff films are concerned. And for any of you who don't know what a snuff film is supposed to be, it's supposed to be, uh, it is rumored or alleged to be a film where they entice um, a young woman, or it could be a young man, uh, who thinks they're doing straight pornography uh, into a situation where as they are going to have sex or before they have sex or while they have sex, they are suddenly brutally murdered on film and that there is rumored to be and a large audience to see this kind of violence and um, I know this brings up a horrific concept which is um, somewhat of what we've dealt with in this film which is why would anybody want to see something as horrible as that. I think that's a very appropriate and nice thought, but I actually think we all know deep inside us that since time began, human beings are capable. There isn't an atrocity or a horror you can think of that people have not done worse. I'm uh, talking to you on a day where the images of the ethnic cleansing, I believe, is the politically correct term, is going on in Kosovo. And so I'm sure um, you all have seen the images on your television also. So um, who are we kidding that there aren't people that would want to see people murdered because it's happening all the time? One of the things that helped me the most in putting this movie together was that I heard on National Public Radio, they, they did a, a wonderful uh, series on violence, and they, they interviewed, um, of course, policemen, gang members, gang mothers, uh, hitmen, mercenaries, uh, people, all, all facets of the world of, of violence. And the last person they spoke to was an African-American gentleman who was a professor at one of the Ivy League universities. And um, I think he was head of the Department of Psychiatry or, or maybe Human Behavior. I'm not quite sure what his exact title was. 
But he said that the age-old question that has haunted us has always been, how could one human being do this to another? Because we look at documentaries of the Holocaust, um, we see ethnic cleansing on our TV, we see grown men herd children into uh, pits in Rwanda and machete them to death, we see acts of horror in families around us in our own neighborhoods, children abducted and raped on morning television. And we ask each other, how could a human being do this to one another? Well, what this gentleman said was, it's a, there's a very simple answer to this age-old question. Human be beings do these things to other human beings because they want to. And I think that's a concept that we don't want to admit to ourselves because it's much easier for us to say, well, you know, it's Charles Manson and he's a madman. But the truth is Charles Manson did not commit those murders. The young women that he sent to commit those murders were all from upper middle class homes. They had educations. They were attractive. They looked like your wife, your mother, your sister, your teacher. He just told them to go murder them. And those women not only killed people, they took a pregnant woman and cut open her stomach and killed her child and her. So I know these things are horrific, but they do exist and we do deal with them all the time. And we do have a fascination with them because we are all the people who do slow down to see the accident on the freeway. And we know we are. Montel Williams did an amazing thing after Princess Diana's death. He had a talk show where he had journalists on and people talking about whether the media was responsible for Diana's death. You remember that controversy. And he said, this was the week after her death, and he said at one point, no one has purchased the video of the aftermath of this crash, their deaths and what it looked like. We bought that footage, and after commercial break, we're going to show it to you. And everyone, of course, went into a total outrage, I being one of them. I was watching this, and I was just getting ready to call my friends to say, do you believe what this guy is doing? This is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. And he came back from the commercial break, and he said, we did not buy the footage, but you didn't turn off your television set, did you? And I'm sure I don't have to explain the meaning of that. I will. I'll keep trying for you. You can count on me. A lot of the technology that you're seeing in the film is highly advanced and it's very tedious to <laughs> shoot some of that and put it on film. And Bob Ellswit, <laughs> one of his claims to fame is he shot all the inserts for the original Star Wars. And um, for those of you who are Star Wars freaks, that might be an interesting tidbit. So he would approach inserts as great works of art. A lot of times they're tossed away in a movie. And so because some of them were so tedious and took so long, I used to 
give him a hard time. But when the movie got put together, I called him and said, we have the most beautiful inserts I've ever seen in a film. So he was the winner in the long run. This young lady is a local stripper. Her name is Ryan. She was actually brought in as a stand-in while we were testing film and lighting for this movie. And um, her face was so haunting, and her demeanor was so perfect for Marianne Matthews that she got the role. And um, a lot of the work that she did was extremely tedious, and she was a, a, a real sport. One of the themes that um, haunted me in, in making this, and still does, is I didn't realize how many runaways and missing people that were in the United States. The missing um, persons bureau that we just uh, did our version of in the scenes before, when Nick was supposed to be in Cleveland, uh, the, those figures are accurate, that there are 750,000 um, to a million people missing each year in the United States. Now, a lot of those are elderly people that they find because they, they forget or lose their way. A lot of them are children or teenagers who, for one reason or another, have run away or come back or someone else has them and, and, and they're returned. But there are a lot of them that, of course, are still missing. And then... There are a million runaways every year. Runaways are not always classified as missing people because a lot of times families know that they've just run away. And um, that still haunts me because I don't know what happens to a lot of those people. Where are these people that are missing for so long? Um, a friend of mine who is a psychiatrist was telling me that, and she's had a lot of work with runaways and um, young drug addicts. She and uh, a posse used to work the Greyhound bus terminal in Los Angeles because so many runaways that come into the city, the same as this young woman in our movie would have, um, are such prey to the pimps and the drug dealers and the pornographers. And of course, the battle that my friend the shrink and her friends had was they had to compete with the pimps and the pornographers for these young women and young men who got off the buses because how can a minimum wage compare to turning a few tricks or getting a few grand to be in a, in a, in a porno movie and many of these people are never heard of again and this is not only Los Angeles this is all over the world. There was $10 billion spent on the sex industry in the United States last year. A lot of that is mainstream. Um, a lot of it is not. You might be interested to know that $1 billion was spent on phone sex um, last year. And so obviously we're all in the wrong business. But, um, but you don't know anyone who does it. That's the other thing about our culture. We have this real hypocrisy. I think something like 65% of married people commit adultery, but you don't know anyone who really does it, only those people on Jerry Springer. And this is my favorite statistic. There's more, there was more money spent last year 
on strip bars than all live legitimate entertainment in the United States, including Broadway and rock concerts. So I'll be opening a strip bar in a city near you very soon. This is one of my favorite actresses in the world, the great Amy Morton. She is um, from Chicago. Uh, several years ago, I did a film called Cousins for Paramount uh, with Isabella Rossellini, Ted Danson, Sean Young, and Billy Peterson, who is a big star in the Chicago theater. And Billy and David Mamet um, gave me Speed the Plow, a great Mamet play about Hollywood. Uh, it's actually not about Hollywood. It's really about the end of the world <laughs> as David sees it. And uh, I went to Chicago to do this play. It was the first play I ever directed. And Billy at that time was living with Amy Morton, and I was unfamiliar with her as an actress because she stays in Chicago and does mostly theater. And um, she's brilliant and gave a devastating performance in this film. You haven't seen anything yet. She has a lot more coming up. I can't say enough about Nicolas Cage. He is one of, besides his obvious talents, he's, he's a young man that I admire very much. You know, um, after we had been shooting for a couple of weeks, there was something that I felt about him that I couldn't really put into words. And on this particular day, friends of mine who are um, studio big shots came to visit the set. And they were, they had the latest gossip, uh, which, you know, the Hollywood buzz, which I call the shit du jour. And to, so they were gossiping about somebody or something. And Nick just very elegantly and very casually kind of drifted away from the conversation and went back to his trailer. And later I went back into his trailer and I said, I just realized something about you that's been on my mind, but I couldn't really articulate it until today. You won't gossip, will you? And he said, no, I, I would like to. I want to. But it doesn't make me feel good about myself. Um... I wish I could say the same, but it's not true in my case. But it's something, it's one of the many things that I admire about Nick. He also has an insane sense of humor. And when he and Joaquin got together, well, that's coming up later. We're still in the period, as you can see, um, where the the blue and gray quality of um, this bleakness is, is working for us, I hope, and I hope it's working for you as a as an assistance to this journey that Nick is going on and, and an understanding of what this young lady's past was like, that she was in a town like this without hope in a sense that there was no way out for her except her her dream of you know bright lights big city well, you can leave 
This man is Don Creech, and he has not acted a lot in films either. He's a wonderful character actor. He is the keeper of all the Muppets. He works for Jim Henson's company and is the caretaker and cataloger of all the Muppets, and there are thousands of them. And he takes care of them, the repairing of them, the, the housing of them, and how they're, how they're all cataloged and, and kept track of. So you might think that's interesting. This is Norman Reedus, who's going to come out soon in a, an interesting film called Gossip. And he was, some of you will recognize him, he was a, a model for Prada for quite a while. And um, obviously is, is a very unusually attractive young man, but he's a wonderful young actor. Uh, left home when he was 15, um, which I can relate to as I left home very young also. And um, it either makes you or breaks you. I think it broke me for a long time. I think it made him. And um, I think he's capable of um, some outstanding work. He, he only had, unfortunately, one scene in our film, but I think you're going to be hearing a lot about him. It's not easy. Why? What's going on? It's just tough. I think one of the great things about making film is... Um, I grew up in a poor neighborhood in Queens, and my father died when I was four, and my mother was out at work six days a week and three nights a week to support us. So I was really on the street by the time I was seven, had a bicycle. And it was before television, which probably a lot of you can't even imagine. And even when television came out, we were too poor to have one for a long time. But there was this amazing movie theater that literally from from our apartment, from my mother's living room, I could look across the street and see the back entrance to this huge movie palace called the Sunnyside Movies. And as early as I can remember, I spent all my time in this movie theater. And something happened to me in that theater where movies really reached out to me and whatever disconnection and loneliness and fear and insanity that I was feeling went away in, in the dark there watching incredible movies at that time um, some of the greatest of the Hollywood movies and I feel uh, traveling all over the world. This is my 13th film as a director, but I've made many other films doing other jobs because I started as a $200 a week costume designer in the Christmas of 1971, and I did costumes and art direction and then production design, and then I started to write. And even though this is my 13th feature, I've been working steadily, thank God, in the movie business um, for over 25 years. And wherever I go 
in the world, I, I meet people who have seen one or more of my films, and, and different films produce different reactions in different people. And the idea that somebody sat in the dark or at home as you are and watched something that I've done and that it angers them or excites them or makes them laugh or whatever the emotion is, um, I feel that it's a great privilege and a great gift because I feel that I'm part of a uh, chain uh, where people like John Ford and John Huston and Alfred Hitchcock and Walt Disney and Ilya Kazan, you know, and, and many, many more, that their work, I didn't even know their names, but that their work meant something to me and still does, and that maybe hopefully I could have a small part in that chain and that some of the work that I've done has reached out and given people some form of entertainment, escape, enlightenment, then I feel that I got my childhood dream because I decided at seven that I really wanted to make film. And um, so I feel very blessed and very lucky. That was one of my favorite scenes in the whole film you just watched. Uh, the scene between Amy and Nick, uh, a very, very understated, to me, devastating performance from both of them. Her loneliness, his, I think that is the moment in the film where Nick starts to identify with the young girl in her life. He has met her boyfriend, he has met her mother, he has seen her bedroom. She's now a real person for him, not just an image in the film. This is one of my favorite pieces of music. Um, the idea of making Hollywood the kind of casbah was um, a guilty pleasure. Guilty in the sense that um, I knew I'd be asked about it in the media, and I was. There's a billboard of Angeline, I don't know if any of you have ever seen the Angeline billboards all over LA? She kind of represents the the whole concept of of image over accomplishment because no one's ever seen Angeline in a movie or in a television show, but she has billboards all over the city. The rumor is that she has a very rich boyfriend in the billboard business, but I don't know if that's true or not. This is a red light district that we created um, because like New York City and several other cities, a lot of this has been cleaned up in Los Angeles, and uh, so we had to create our own. All the extras that you're looking at are people that Bill Dance put together for us. Um, the journey that Nick just took in the daytime through Hollywood, those are a lot of the um, actual runaways that um, that have come to L.A. and fortunately have gotten themselves to youth centers or to, um, you know, hospices and, and places that help the young people stay away from the, you know, the drug dealers and the pornographers and the pimps. Unfortunately, they're always uh, vulnerable because of the money involved.
Um, we're about to meet um, another great human being, Joaquin Phoenix, um, also a born character actor, uh, capable of doing probably any role in the world. Um, and he's still extremely young. Could I interest you in a battery-operated vagina? Well, it's tempting, but no thanks. Okay. A little humor here in the porno store. Some people in the press have asked me if this is my statement against pornography. Um, these are obviously people who don't know me. Um, I think anybody's vote on pornography is absolutely unimportant because it exists. It's the same as prostitution. Um, we did not create these things, and as long as there's a market for them, there's going to be pornography. This is, of course, a mainstream pornography store, which exists in most cities or on the outskirts of most cities. I know none of you have ever been in one, but um, I have. And... Um, this is a big, flashy one in Hollywood, stands. And um, they do sell portable um, battery-operated vaginas, along with um, many amazing, what are called marital aids, one of my favorite terms. And um, I had to cut that scene down. The um, We got an NC-17 on this movie, which is almost like getting an X, but which I expected. And the board was great with us. We worked with them. They were not ogres. As you can see, they left an awful lot of what some people would, would call offensive material in this film. But in that particular scene, behind Joaquin, there are four screens going, and there were um, interesting, um, there was interesting pornography going on in each one of them. And I hoped that when we put the movie together, that would just be in the background enough and blurred enough that you wouldn't really be able to notice everything graphically, but um, the board did not see it that way. Um, and unfortunately, on his best lines, right behind his head, was a, um, a lesbian uh, love scene going on, and um, that was um, definitely a taboo. And. This is a motel room that was created also by Gary. Almost all the uh, small interiors uh, we created because it's very difficult to shoot in some of these small rooms, so it's nice to have what's called in film a wild wall where you can take out one wall and you can shoot it. Because if you actually go to a motel, I wanted to do everything in the real locations, but in the rooms that are so tiny, you're, you're really stuck in a corner with a camera and you only have one or two angles that, that are not as satisfactory as, as some of the other angles. Um, some of the interesting things with that, um, that are called marital aids is that um, a lot of the porn stars have... Um, apparatus, apparati, that, that um, claim to be formed on their bodies. So, for instance, there are uh, dildos that are um, supposedly penis, penises of the 
male, heterosexual and homosexual porn stars and vaginas that are supposedly molded on the female homosexual and heterosexual porn stars. So just in case you have a particular favorite, you might want to check in with your local porn store and uh, porn store and see if they perhaps have the model that you would be seeking. Um, I think that as far as pornography is concerned in the United States, that it's going to, um, that it's probably going to get more bizarre because of the internet. I know that um, some of the young people that work in offices that I visit, there seems to be a network of people who want to show the most shocking image every day. There seems to be a club of young people that want to make sure they've got the most outrageous images that day to internet around. And uh, I'm not judging this at all. I'm, I'm only saying that um, I think that you're going to see more and more of it. Um, I think people's shock and, and moral indignation about anything to do with the sex industry is um, extremely impotent. And uh, I also think the way it's most hypocritical is I think that if you get on your high horse about anything, and pretend that you are disgusted by things and are the moral arbiter, it automatically sends a message that you have no dark recesses in your own soul or in your own taste. And I, for one, don't believe you. Look, Pops, it's not too late to change your mind about all this. I'm going to tell you, there's things that you're going to see that, that you can't unsee. They get in your This is the line I was talking about. There are things you'll see that you won't, that you can't unsee. But everybody's got their limit. Look, I've been here six fucking years trying to get my... I saw a... So I start clerking part-time where I work here to make... I saw a gentleman on a talk show whose wife had left him for a low-life gangster, and she had taken their children... And the husband was glad to be rid of the wife. But he was extremely worried that the children were going to be in the atmosphere of this um, gangster. And the wife said, well, they don't know what he does. And the man said, yeah, but if you dance with the devil, the devil don't change. The devil changes you. And that's where I got that line from. And I've heard other versions of it since then. But we know it's the truth. This is based on some of the headlines in Los Angeles. They bring over illegal um, aliens, uh, women from Mexico, and they keep them as prisoner, these pimps. And they put them in these little houses in the suburbs. And usually a neighbor will get wise because there's um, too many male, male members of society going in and out of the house. And uh, they usually get raided or, or actually 
Uh, sometimes they have an informant that will tip them, and they move in the middle of the night and just open somewhere else. So this was based on um, some stories in the news in Los Angeles. I'm sure it exists in other cities too, but of course it's very easy to do here because of um, because of the the border situation and and so many immigrants coming into Los Angeles from Mexico. This is um, an underground swap meet uh, for pornography. And uh, Joaquin explains here that this is um, not going to exist for very long because of the Internet and people have other ways, but there are still people who like the thrill of this sort of seedy treasure hunt. Um, this is where people might be able to buy... Um, illegal pornography. And um, these places also, like many nightclubs, uh, change locations every night or once a week they'll be in a different place. So they, uh, people come in, they set up these tables, they display their wares, and there's an underground, almost a, you know, a, a tribal drum network where people know about these things. This, of course, is a suggestion of child pornography. And um, I don't think I have to say anything more than that. I did not allow, allow anybody on the film to bring us any form of child pornography or to look at any of it. It's something I never want to see as long as I live. But of course, unfortunately, we know it exists. Nick is frustrated uh, by going into all these illegal areas and asking about snuff and constantly being told there is none because naturally there would be intense paranoia that he might be an underground, you know, cop or fed or uh, reporter. And um, the, the rumor in illegal pornography, though everybody claims they've never made one or seen one, is that there's fake snuff, which we deal with a little later. The question is, um, this is an enema film in case you um, would like to uh, know more about it. Um, this was of course a scene that was um, highly edited, as you can imagine. The young woman uh, who is administering the enema uh, uh, when we made these films, uh, we used the people who do uh, hardcore pornography and S&M films for a living. As she told me, she doesn't get much hardcore porn anymore, mostly S&M. It's a job. Um, this is an underground sex club that we created. What I started to tell you is Bill Dance, who did our extras, all the people you see in this scene are people that enjoy an alternate lifestyle. They have, um, they play out their fantasies. They um, know each other, many of them. They have roles that they play, and they have clubs that they go to. This is one that we created ourselves. Um, that scene was very heavily cut down. There was much more going on in that club. Um, 
This was our attempt to show you what fake snuff from the Philippines might look like. Um, having never seen snuff or fake snuff and hoping none of us ever do, um, that was our attempt at, at creating something. And, and of course, the big joke here is that Nick realizes it's the same woman. And, um, and so his journey here ended in more frustration. The only research that I was able to find uh, about snuff, really, was a book called Gods of Death by an Israeli gentleman who is credited with exposing the neo-Nazi ring in Germany several years ago. And he decided to find out if there was such a thing as snuff and where it existed and who made it and to expose that. So he set off on a journey which is documented in his book, Gods of Death. He claims that uh, there is a, a great underground network of people with wealth who do, who are excited by horror and that snuff films do exist. If any of you have more interest in learning more about that subject, I suggest the book. He claims it's much worse than we can imagine, that there's actually uh, a network of people who send out agents to places like um, Kosovo, Rwanda, Bosnia, Somalia, um, that agents with money will hire teenage soldiers and uh, give them video cameras so that when rape and murder and mutilation are happening, that they will film it, and that there's an audience for this. Whether there is or not, I do not know, because it says so in this book, but I have no proof of it. Joaquin is very representative to me of these young people who come to major cities with stars in their eyes, and. Um, for every person who makes it, there are thousands who don't get their dream. And there's always that, that sadness where, you know, you, you're a musician and an artist who's just working part-time in a porno store. And then years go by, and what you have to do is face the mirror one day and say, I'm a clerk in a porno store who wanted to be a musician. And he is young enough to not have reached the mirror stage yet, but he's getting close because he's very smart. I read um, James Elroy's book, The Great James Elroy, um, his great, one of his many great books on the Black Dahlia murders. And then there's a recent, more recent book by a man um, whose name is Gilmore, uh, called Severed. Um, he's a journalist, and um, if you read it, he appears to have solved the Black Dahlia case. And I don't know if you know what the Black Dahlia case was, but she was uh, a very pretty, sexy young woman named Elizabeth Short who came from the East from a single mother 
family. Her father was MIA, and she came out to California to find her father and also to find stardom. This was during the Second World War, and she never really made it into the movies, but she started going out with pornographers and with pimps, and with she became a party girl. And she was found one morning in a lot in Hollywood, in an empty lot, and her body was severed in half, and she was mutilated. And it's considered one of the most famous unsolved mysteries in the world. And it was very interesting to me as I was making this movie because she was a, a pretty, sexy, lost brunette who came to Hollywood to find fame and fortune and became a corpse, a mutilated corpse. And I thought, well, here is Marianne Matthews this pretty sexy lost brunette who comes to Los Angeles and a very similar thing happens to her. Now I don't know if Andy, Andrew Kevin Walker, the writer, was aware of that when he was writing the screenplay. I've never asked him. But of course these stories get played out all the time. Many of these girls uh, go back home. Many of them go on to okay lives, but many of them don't. My question always is, what happens to them? Where do they go? And who cares? I wonder if there's anyone in their family that cares enough to find them. Or maybe the lack of care is why they're gone to begin with. I don't know. I don't know all the reasons. This is a, um, obviously a garment working building downtown. I was always trying to give you interesting locations and, you know, we rented places that perhaps you hadn't seen in every movie. Here is the great James Gandolfini as Eddie Poole. Um, probably with the success of Sopranos, I hope none of you have ever missed an episode of Sopranos, you all know who James is now. James started acting late in life. He was a bouncer for years and um, has an eclectic background and accompanied a young lady one day to an acting class. And um, here he is, a big star. He's probably one of the most natural actors I've ever worked with. Um, and he did enormous amounts of research. He spent a lot of time in the part of Los Angeles which is called The Valley, where a lot of pornography comes out of. And he spent a lot of time with the men who make it. And uh, although it was very hard for him to get in at first, fortunately he had a very attractive female assistant, and um, that turned out to be the key for him. But his character is based very much on the men that he met, and, and he's sort of a combination of, uh, of them. And he's representative of the really um, low, low, low end of pornography. Um, not the glitziest boxes in your adult bookstore. And 
he's also um, an incredible human being and has great, 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 great sense of humor and great friends and is, I think, an unlikely star, which is always very exciting for us when you see someone who isn't, you know, perhaps the image of uh, a male god. Um, and they become so popular with the public. That always excites me a lot because it breaks stereotypes. Um, this is another example of the genius of Robert Ellswood. Um, we didn't have a lot of time on this movie. We were moving all the time. We were rushing around. We were um, at a different location every five minutes, and he had to really invent a lot of stuff on the spot, especially with me harassing him constantly, saying, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. Um, this is Mary Catherine Garrison. Unfortunately, this is all you're going to ever see of her in this film. Uh, the script had another character in it, um, a young girl named Summer, who was a runaway and uh, whose life was very parallel to Mary Ann Matthews. And um, there are some wonderful scenes where Nick tries to save her. Unfortunately, the movie was uh, over three hours long when I put it together. And so some of the scenes and some of the uh, that particular storyline had to go. And I was very sad about that because she did a magnificent job. And it's always, it's always very painful to have to tell anybody, especially a very young person, and this was her first film, that their great scenes aren't going to be in the movie, but I gave her the scenes so she can show them to other directors and casting directors, but um, as soon as I have another job for her, I will hire her again. I've talked a little bit about um, shooting this film, uh, and it it, I think we were about 60 to 70 days. We came in way under schedule and under budget because of the great actors and, and the great crew, and it was very difficult because we were moving all the time. This is an incredible um, location. This is in Culver City, um, in the west side of, of Los Angeles, and, and um, this is a, a house where a lovely older Asian woman lives whose husband was a stuntman for Errol Flynn and was one of the first Caucasian surfers in Hawaii. In fact, she has wonderful paintings of him on the old longboards. Anybody who's a, a surf nut will know what I mean by longboards. And um, she's a wonderful human being. And this little house sits on 36 acres with this incredible view and and fortunately for up oh, you're about to see frontal nudity this is a very big deal in america frontal nudity you can kill 50 people in a movie but if you show frontal nudity especially male frontal nudity it is a big problem so you just saw some so you see we're very daring um the, the lovely older Asian lady who owns, and have, you, aren't you glad you didn't have to do that stunt, fall in that pool? That was all in one take, which means that that noble stuntman threw himself into that filthy water down the edge of that cement pool. 
Uh, the lovely Asian lady is in negotiation, I'm happy to say, with contractors for her land, so I hope she becomes a zillionaire. Yes. I've talked uh, somewhat about some of the research that I did and, and James and some of the other people did on the film. Um, I haven't talked about much about Nick's research. Uh, that's because I told him not to do any. Um, his character, Tom Wells, is um, the way I saw this character was, uh, you know, obviously a young man from a blue-collar world. His father worked in the steel mills, which he explains early on in the scene at uh, the Christian mansion. And he's bettered himself. He's gone to an Ivy League school. He went through on scholarship. Um, he got good grades, obviously married a young woman um, who, who would be judged as above his station. And he's upwardly mobile and um, ambitious. And so when he is invited to the Christian mansion, he is suddenly in a world that he was not privy to until that moment. And he takes this job for his own ambitious reasons. And that was the character that Nick was working on. I specifically kept him out of any of the research we were doing in these worlds because I wanted him, not that he's an unsophisticated human being, but I wanted his character to feel that he was a stranger going into these things and knew nothing about them. So these would all, this would all be very, very new to him. Not that he's a person who hadn't seen pornography in his life, but certainly was not in any way, shape, or form conversant or familiar with a world of illegal pornography or of this kind of depth of human depravity that we're about to go into at this point of, uh, in the movie. Um, Nick is a very meticulous actor. He is one of the most professional people I've ever met. Both these young men that you're watching now are. They come to the set completely prepared. They are, they know their lines. They have thought about the intent and the substance and the subtext of the scene. They um, have suggestions and ideas and idiosyncrasies that they want to bring to the moments in this film. They are a director's dream. And I feel that way about everyone in this particular cast. Um, any of you who have seen any of my other movies know that I've always been extremely blessed with great casts in all my films, and, and certainly this is another example of that. I can't imagine having a greater cast in this particular movie. Also, it's important for me to really stress the fact that all of these actors took a big risk in a sense, when they decided to be in this film. Not just the fact that it was going to be controversial, but that their characters were going to have to go through hell. That they were going to have to expose parts of themselves and um, go into fear and disgust and ugliness and um, 
I don't want to spoil anything that's coming up in the film, but, but obviously what I've tried to build here is a story which is taking you to a place of inexorable uh, and total um, depravity because as, as Nick has gone through each step, I've tried to bring him and you deeper and deeper into his world. Here again, he is, in a sense, flattering, appeasing uh, Mrs. Christian. Um, not that she is not a fine woman and a kind woman. Uh, it also was very important for me to show you what I think a really rich woman from a traditional family with much old money uh, is like not not the sort of cosmetic, you know, surgeoned bleach blondes that pass on television for rich women all the time. And um, as I said before, Myra's a great actress. These films of Dino Velvets, this was based very much on, there are a few porno makers who consider themselves great artists. Um, they'll do pornography, hardcore pornography or S&M and then add surreal images from other films or from music videos and um, many of them and their fans consider them great artists. Uh, art is in the eye of the beholder. I will leave that decision up to you. Uh, the young lady in this scene with Machine is very famous in the porno world. She is, uh, and it was very, very helpful to us. She has a specialty which is called Knots. Uh, there are whole magazines of only her, and um, she gets tied up in many ways. Some of them are actually quite beautiful. There, there are photos of her where she's uh, rolled in, into a kind of ball, like a, the way you see children do, a kind of fetal position. And um, she's tied then with silk rope, with many um, extravagant and exotic knots. And it almost has a Japanese look to it. Uh, then there are many other uh, photos of her where the, the tying and the knotting look quite painful and have to do with the genitals, etc., and I'm going to leave it right at that. But she was very helpful to us. She uh, taught us a lot about what makes something illegal and not. She's the one who told us that weapons uh, cannot be used where there is penetration. Um, and you can do S&M and you can do sex, but you can't combine them together in a legal film. Of course, there are many illegal films that do. This is the famous New York Meat District, and um, this has been used, not this particular building, but this, this area has been used before in film, uh, Fatal Attraction, for instance. But um, we used it because it, it is where there's a tremendous street prostitution business, and it seemed like a spot where Dino Velvet would have his office. This is uh, actually an old building in Los Angeles that you're looking at, and this is some of Gary Wisner's most brilliant work. He painted these walls black, and they're covered in saran wrap, so they have a certain shine to them. And then 
This room, I wish I could actually take you all through it. It really is a work of art. It, it's, so, it's filled with so much uh, disturbing and interesting um, paraphernalia that it, it almost looks... I don't know if you're familiar with Cornell's Boxes, who is a, an artist who, who did these collage boxes of many items, a doll's head with, you know, rusty nails or whatever. And, and they're in most of your local museums, Cornell boxes. Uh, they're quite small. But this room felt to me like you were walking into a Cornell box. This actor here, Peter Stromari, is... I, I, there's no... I, I, I'm trying to resist hyperbole here, but, but I mean, he is one of the great artists working today. He's from Ingemar Bergman's Ensemble in Sweden. Uh, many of you will recognize him as the silent blonde Swede who put Steve Buscemi in The Woodchopper in the great Coen Brothers film Fargo. And he's also one of these great character actors who's capable of doing anything. Uh, much of this character that you're seeing now, Dino Velvet, he created. Um, the hair, the facial hair. Um, he's playing, of course, a narcissist and a, an egomaniac and a crack addict. And a soulless person who is um, probably one of the most frightening people in the film because human life means absolutely nothing to him. His own ends are all that count. Um, and what's scary about him is he does it with a sort of throwaway humor and almost a fey quality. So that there's even a touch of insidious charm to all of it. And um, I think he did a brilliant job. And I'm, of course, ironically, he's one of the sweetest people that ever lived and has a wonderful wife and would bring his beautiful dog to the set all the time and is a lot of fun. This was one of the hottest days in Los Angeles. And we had shot the outside of this at the meat market early on, one of our first days of shooting in February. By now it was, I guess, almost May. And this room was so tiny and painted black. And by the time the lights got in and the crew, this was so hot in here that I can't believe these actors actually did all this great performing. This is downtown L.A., which is quite a fascinating area all in itself. Um, I just threw this accident in because I thought it would make it more visually interesting. So now when you read critics who say that, you know, that I will just do things visually, <laughs> without much content, you can say you agree. I just put that accident in so it wouldn't be just another bar scene.
Um, sometimes, even when the review or, or the film class or the um, article I'm reading about one of my films is very complimentary, sometimes we're condemned in the negative pieces for things that are just an accident, and sometimes we're praised for things that are just an accident or that just happened at the time to solve a situation. And this is one of those cases where I just thought, well, if we do just another bar scene, it'll be just another bar scene for you. So I just added some other life going on. Also, since this is supposed to play, take place in New York, it's not unusual in any major city that has a large you know, street world for many different dramas to be going on at the same time. This is actually a bar in downtown Los Angeles. Am I ruining all your illusions just when you thought this was real? I did not ask Joaquin to pierce his um, eyebrow. That was his idea. And uh, the hair color was his idea, too. And he worked with the makeup artists on his tattoos and his brands. I don't know if any of you noticed them earlier, but I know that is a, a whole art form in itself, and I know many people are aficionados of branding and of tattooing, and so you might find his interesting. We tried to make them look somewhat homemade, somewhat naive, and uh, I hope we succeeded. This is a warehouse in Brooklyn and um, one of my favorite locations I've ever shot at. As you can see, it's so haunting and uniquely beautiful in a, in a very strange way. Uh, I hope you can see that with me. This music once again, um, of course, all of it is by Michael Dana. And uh, the voices you're hearing and a lot of the instrumentation were all recorded in Morocco. Uh, Michael is a student of um, African, uh, Arabian, Middle Eastern work, as you can hear. And he went over there and um, after playing me some themes and some things and then recorded a lot of this with the people who are the um, local talent in Morocco and then came back and sweetened it all with um, a um, an orchestra but very little uh, more of the uh, ethnic quality this is a warehouse in Long Beach, and I'd always wanted to do a um, red room. Red room, red room. And uh, this was the perfect place to paint it red. A lot of cinematographers won't shoot red rooms because um, they don't think it works well on film. Uh, but. As I said before, Robert Elswood is, is courageous and daring. and uh, I think part of the secret is also drawing the people into the middle of the room so they're not right against the, the walls. The um, crossbow that Peter is using is a gorgeous 
but of course, terrifying lethal weapon. And all of the archery you saw him doing was all him. He uh, actually not only shot the arrows, but hit the targets every time. Uh, to my knowledge, he had one day training to do that. So if you're doing a Robin Hood movie out there, I'd look to Peter as perhaps the evil sheriff of Nottingham. Probably wouldn't have to shave his beard, would he? Machine. When I read this script, this moment was always um, so terrifying because Tom Wells and his cockiness had set up this um, meeting thinking that he would expose Machine and get the goods on everyone. And, and, and of course, foolishly, they were years ahead of him and, and he's gotten himself into this situation. Um, which was compelling when I, when I read the script. It was, it was frightening. And I didn't know where the movie was going at this point. And this was, there are always, when you're reading a script, there are, there are moments that you read and you say, well, yeah, I'm going to do this movie. This is my movie. And this is certainly one of them. But I can't do any of this, I mean, without these great actors. I mean, this is basically a room with some people in it. And the drama that's unfolding now is because they make it happen. This is Joaquin doing another piece of his extraordinary acting. That is real for him. He what he put himself through emotionally before we did this scene is, it was devastating to watch, but of course, he had to be left alone to put himself through the process because this is real for him, as it is for all of them. This was Peter's idea to eat the photo of Nick's wife and child. You can see why I left it in. Mr. W. The scene that's coming up now, outside, was actually um, written to take place in a car. Uh, in the original script, Nick's character took the original um, snuff film that you saw at the beginning of the film with him. Um, he took it to a bank in Manhattan and um, put it in a safe deposit vault. So this scene actually took place in a car between the lawyer, Mr. Longdale, played by Anthony Heald, and Nick's character in somewhat of a traffic jam. So I felt that I, I would be trapping you in a car, which is always, you know, shooting people in cars is very difficult because how many angles can you get in a car? You know, it's pretty obvious how you have to cover dialogue and people shooting, and I thought that it would be much more intense if they were isolated. I also felt if they were in traffic, even though 
Longdale had a gun on Nick, that he might be able to get out of the car or to foil Longdale in some way, whereas if he had the tape with him in the small security box that he carries his weapons in, it would be more dramatic if the scene happened right outside the warehouse and make it more immediate for you. Whether I made the right choice or not, you decide. This was very difficult for Nick and Anthony because this is one of the first days of filming on this movie. And so Nick has to, as a lot of actors do in most movies and actresses, he had to be his character at this point in the movie, not at all the person that started out in the movie or that will end in this movie. And to do a scene where he has to emotionally explode as one of the first scenes in the movie, um, both these actors were, of course, nervous. I usually assure actors at that time that let's do it today and if it doesn't work out, we'll come back and do it at the end of the movie. And I don't say that just to appease them. I really mean it. But if we're there and it's scheduled, why not try it? And I'm very proud of them. This was a very difficult scene to shoot. It's coming up because this is where the violence really begins in the film and you know violence is terrifying to watch on film but when it's recreated in front of you it's also terrible uh, seeing Joaquin's character and Joaquin having his throat cut by machine in that scene was difficult for all of us there was um, a more graphic shot of that, which I had to take out because of the NC-17 rating. And we have an R now. What you're watching is an R movie. But not only was the sex too explicit in some of the scenes, but some of the violence that we did was too real. I think this scene is an extraordinary example of Robert Ellswit's talent the lighting and the camera work and the the strange beauty that he's given to something so horrifying at the same time that that there's a I tried to make a movie that drew you in that that you could take the same journey that Nick was taking that somehow you were being drawn deeper and deeper into this world and yet that there's a that there's a horrific fascination to it at the same time he's saying that longdale fucked us which is so totally completely some of my friends think i'm sick cuz i made this movie stay away from me i don't think so I think that if Nick had played 
a private detective who had gone into the world of crack cocaine or white slavery or domestic terrorism, nobody would have raised an eyebrow. I think the minute you get S-E-X involved, it all takes a different turn. I know a lot has been written and said about the hypocrisy of the American culture where sex is concerned. I don't know why. People laugh at us in other countries. When you're doing a scene like this, spending a number of days in this one space with these phenomenal artists, your profound, my profound respect for, for actors increases moment by moment because this is the, the, the greatness of the actor. I mean, all you're watching is a red room with some people in it. And they are creating in front of you every moment of their reality. And it never ceases to amaze me how powerful film is. And I guess how narcissistic we are as, as people because since time began, we are obsessed with watching stories about people, people acting out stories for us to watch. So we are quite fascinated with ourselves, aren't we? Guns scare me. And they also scare me because of the terrible death of Brandon Lee, who was a friend of mine and a phenomenal young man, as well as a, as a phenomenal talent. And um, since his death on The Crow because of a gun accident, I am not only terrified of guns in life, but I'm terrified of guns on the set. And I'm obsessed with making sure the guns are empty and I have to see it 10 times and I have to have the gun expert shoot it, you know, over and over again to make sure there's nothing in the barrel or nothing in the, in the gun itself. Here's another example of how weirdly artistic that, that warehouse and dock are in Brooklyn. This was Eddie's first, this was, uh, I'm calling him Eddie because that was his character. This was James' first day on the movie. And all he did was run. Over and over again. I think he had to go and have his knee looked at the next day at the doctor. Here's the great Eddie Yancic at the wheel. Eddie Yancic is a brilliant stunt coordinator and uh, doubled for Nick in this movie. And um, he did that driving turn that you just saw. And another one coming up right here. This is my favorite shot in the movie. I did not do it. My... Um, Assistant, uh, who is second unit director, Eli Richborg, did that shot. 
But I should have taken credit for it, shouldn't I? Tom, where are you? Amy, just listen. Take Cindy. Get out of the house now. Go to where we spent Fourth of July weekend. Why? What's wrong? Amy, please, I can't. I'll be One of the nice now. things about the phone calls in our film is the actors were really there for each other. Many times that's not possible, not because the actors always don't want to do it necessarily, but because they may be on another film by the time we're shooting a scene. And what was what was great about this film is most of the time the actors are really speaking to each other. We connected them with cell phones or whatever was necessary. This is, of course, is the turning point in the movie because um, Nick is telling Mrs. Christian that her worst fears are confirmed and that they need to go to the police. And so, of course, nothing will ever be the same in anyone's life again after this moment. Mary Ann Matthews. Mary. Thank Mr. Willis, goodbye. This is a moment of small internal great acting that Myra does, which is, you know, she's looking at a painting of God knows who, someone she's never met, and she has to believe that her husband has committed this atrocity. Myra's from Scotland. We're about to see the great Catherine Keener again, another great character actor who's capable of doing anything. Uh, she can do the most insane comedy for the deepest tragedies. And um, I don't know if any of you saw Neil LeBute's film, Your Friends and Neighbors, but um, she gives a great performance in that. This is another one of Gary's great sets. Why did you disappear? If you can see it. <laughs> I know this is very dark, but as I've been told many times, this is a dark film. Once again, we couldn't shoot in the, this. This is a, um, a hiking um, retreat in California, and so the outside of it, the small bungalows that you see really exist, but the insides are so small that we had to build our own. actors like this and a baby and a cameraman with a handheld camera and um, you're in right in there this hallway with them and Catherine is so obviously upset and Nick is so obviously disturbed um, 
you feel it 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 you're living this with them the same as if you were witnessing your parents or a married couple or anyone you know have moments of high drama in their relationship it's it's very draining and but very exciting in the same way because there's part of you that's experiencing it as a human being and then part of you that's experiencing it as a director so you're you have that that terrible uh, voyeurism where you're you're going oh yes this is great for our movie this is jack betts another great character actor who in a couple of lines conveys that he's obviously been the butler to this very kind rich woman for decades and that her suicide has affected him and yet he retains his poise and so you only see him briefly for a few seconds but you totally understand what's happened through his restrained performance services will be held next week the house we shot this in in Glen Cove the Phipps mansion uh, is right near the airport near JFK so the frustrating thing about a scene like that is you get planes going overhead all the time and you have to shoot in between the planes when I made a movie um, in 83 called DC Cab uh, the one of the airports in DC if you've ever been there is right in the middle of the city and so there we were shooting a movie for no money and a very short 40-day sh shooting schedule with a lot of stand-up comics and people who hadn't been in movies before and planes were coming in every five seconds so planes are uh, a very difficult and car alarms are very difficult parts of filmmaking any of you that have made film or tried to make film or made student films or know how difficult that can be. Whatever it is, wherever you were, just One of the things that's very interesting about research screenings, and maybe some of you have been part of that and uh, been asked to come to a research screening or asked what your vote is um, at that screening or heard about them. Before a film is finished, we take it out and show it to a poor, unsuspecting audience who most of the time doesn't know what they're going to see. They may know an actor's name or an actress's name, but they haven't read reviews, they haven't seen trailers, they don't know what the movie is many times, and they come in and they are guinea pigs for us, and, and uh, we show the film, and, you know, based on a lot of reactions, we you know, either add or subtract things. Some films have been helped very much by reshooting a lot of uh, the film. I know the ending to Fatal Attraction was reshot, and, and uh, many films have used those research screenings in a very positive way. Some of the interesting things that you find out, though, is, for instance, Catherine Keener's character. Many people don't like it if women are angry or speak up for themselves in a film. In fact, there was a very hostile reaction to Nicole Kidman's character in Batman Forever um, the first time we showed it, uh, especially from the older ladies in the audience because they felt that she was too sexually aggressive and they didn't like that. Um, I liked it. The public liked it and in, in general. And, and, uh, but it's interesting, uh, people's views on 
female behavior and how women are supposed to act. When Ashley Judd questioned um, Matthew McConaughey's uh, lie that he had told the sheriff what Sam Jackson was going to do in A Time to Kill, which was kill the two young men that had um, almost murdered and had raped and almost murdered his 10-year-old daughter, uh, she was considered unsympathetic to his cause by a lot of the women in the audience, which uh, I find very interesting. This is Nick's turning point, of course, where he decides that he is somewhat responsible for Joaquin's death, for a lot of the horror he's seen around him, and this is probably the most controversial uh, moment in this movie and any movie I've done because it's vigilante violence, and I know that this is a big thing for a lot of people. Uh, I've also uh, been made to realize by many of the people in the press that most of my films seem to have vigilantes in them. I don't know whether this is from my own um, inability to deal with uh, what I think is uh, perhaps uh, in many cases a flawed uh, legal and justice system. Um, I don't think any of us need to be uh, educated on the fact that a lot of crime is not um, dealt with in a way that we think is real justice. And I think that it's deeper than that, though. I, 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 I don't think it's about me. I actually think it's very common for most of our stories to show a hero or heroine taking matters in their own hands. I think one of the reasons we watch film and theater and, and read novels, fiction, is because in ma many times the people in those stories, the protagonists, do the things that we would love to have done, but we don't do. We don't always rush into the burning building to save everybody, and we don't always right every wrong, and we don't always take on the villains. Many of us um, would like to, but it's just a fantasy. So I'm not so sure me having vigilantes in my films is some deep, dark thing in my psyche. I think it's actually more ordinary than that. I think, you know, it's very common for the hero to slay the dragon. And here's Nick with one of the dragons in this film. One of the things that I used for Nick's character, I should tell you what he used first, maybe, because there's a quote of Nietzsche's, and I'm going to misquote it, but it's something to the effect of, beware when you go to kill the monster that you do not become the monster. And that's what Nick used as his mantra, because, of course, he is becoming someone he never dreamed that he could be at these particular moments. And there is always an argument to be made. If you, you know, if you do take vigilante justice, are you not doing exactly the same thing as the person that you find to be the criminal? For me, what I used was... Um, 
friends of mine had a child that was obsessed with question. Um, why do bad things happen to good people? And no matter what answer my friends gave to their child, uh, he did not stop with this question. And so finally they went to their priest and they asked the priest, why do bad things happen to good people? And he said, that's the wrong question. The question is, bad things happen to good people and what are you going to do about it? So that's what I used for part of the motivation here. I think that Nick has reached a point in this story where he has nowhere to turn. The film is destroyed, so he has no proof. Mrs. Christian is dead. The lawyer is dead. Joaquin is dead. And Dino Velvet is dead. And he has yet to find out who Machine is. And James Gandolfini's character, Eddie Poole, does not know who Machine is because Machine always appears in his mask. And like a lot of people who live with a deep and dark second identity, he keeps it hidden from everyone. That'll be nice, huh? This scene, um, I think, is James' greatest moment in first telling the, and I think it shows his, what they would call chops, at what a talent he is. First of all, earlier in the scene, when he tells you the story of what actually happened to Marianne, he goes through about 20 different emotions. One of them, even for a split second, almost a second of morality that comes in. This is not a monster, this man, necessarily. He's just a lowlife. He's greedy. He's easy. He's a thug. He's not someone who got up in the morning and wanted to kill someone. But if the slaughtering of a young girl on film brings him $20,000, well, as he said, why would you care? She's just a cheap piece of pussy off the street. So what is it? You wifey. You pussy. You big fucking pussy. This is probably, even beyond Nick's vigilante violence, um, the most controversial in the moment in the movie right now because he doesn't know what to do, Nick. And he doesn't have the real courage to pull the trigger. I think many of us have fantasized when we see a horrendous crime that we'd love to get our hands on the person who did it and get in a room with them. I've heard us all say that many times, but I think we know deep in our hearts that if we were standing there with that loaded gun, there is a big leap then to decide whether you're actually going to become a murderer and execute this person. So the way Andrew Kevin Walker dealt with that was something I had never seen in a film before. And Nick makes a phone call. And in this scene, he makes a phone call to the dead girl's mother, Janet Matthews, played by the great Amy Morton. 
This is the most painful scene to shoot in the movie because both these actors live this. She did leave a note and her stupid boyfriend dumped her in I almost hate to talk over this scene because um, so I'm hope, hoping you've watched it without me talking. Because um, I feel the outpouring of emotion from both actors deserve some respect. Nick um, was in a, a room. We shot Amy's scene in a small bedroom in that house you saw earlier in the film. Nick was in another room. Uh, wired up on a phone with her. This is just Amy in a room with two handheld cameras. This is the first take you're watching. I love her so much. We did it two times. And then I went in, uh, lifted her up off the floor where she was a basket case, and um, told her how great she had done. And she said, oh, just tell me I never have to do that again as long as I live. When Nick did his side of the phone call, this is a very unusual location right here. This is, this is something Howard Hughes built, and it was uh, a radar station. And um, it's high above uh, Culver City in Los Angeles. And um, it's just burnt out buildings filled with graffiti. And um, he did his outside in the car the last night of shooting. And uh, the way we worked at Amy was doing a play in Chicago at that time. Her work was finished except for this phone call and she'd gone back. She'd done her side of the phone call early on when we shot at the house. Um, this is me burning James Gallofini alive. He's dead now. The character you saw in Sopranos was a holograph and what they can do with computers now. And uh, when Nick was doing his phone call, he uh, was on a cell phone and called her actually in Chicago. She came home from the play having done a full performance and waited in her bedroom for him to call her and then did her side of the phone call for him. Uh, nothing that was being filmed of course. This is Nick's moment of realizing he's just murdered someone in the most brutal way in order not to leave his bullets behind or any trace he takes the butt of his gun and beats him to death. Can you tell me if you've admitted an adult male with an abdominal wound? This is the Long Island Expressway, and the location you're going to see coming up, which is where Machine lives. Um, we didn't know where Machine would live or how we would live, but we knew it would be someplace out there somewhere. Uh, and. Actually, we were on our way to the Christian mansion one day on a location scout, and we were driving on this Long Island Expressway when suddenly I looked to the left, and there was this dead-end street with four houses on it with the Long Island Expressway on one side and that cemetery to the left. And it seemed a perfect location and also once again one you hadn't seen in a movie 
The people that owned these houses were wonderful to us, came out at night and brought us goodies to eat and, of course, got a big kick out of meeting uh, the actors. And I did a lot of Batman uh, posters and T-shirts and stuff those nights. This is, uh, of course, we're getting to the finale of the film. And what I tried here with film and music is to keep... You can see Nick has now become a predator. Uh, Andrew Kevin Walker had always built in this strange life for machine where he lived with his mother in a little house. And, you know, this is very much based on... And there she goes off to church. And... It's always curious to me, and maybe to you also, but it's very common to see some extraordinarily damaged people capable of great horror uh, when they're finally caught uh, living such ordinary existences. They're not the monsters we would like to think they are. They are inside, but on the outside, the neighbors are always saying they were the nicest people in the world. Um, he was very kind to his mother, which is the what we used here. Uh, the person who's played Machine all through the film, uh, and you're going to see again, is Chris Bauer. Chris Bauer is a wonderful young actor that hasn't been seen a lot also. He's from Yale Drama and Steppenwolf, a great um, Chicago uh, company uh, responsible for many great actors, Gary Sinise, John Malkovich, um, Laurie Metcalf, uh, too numerous to mention. And um, I saw Chris in a play called Mojo about uh, four cockneys in a bar in London in the 50s. Great play. And I thought he was English at first. He had this great accent. This is me really fucking with you, to be honest. Um, you know, I've got you in a house. The problem is, because you've seen the hero heroine in a house in so many movies and you're expecting something to happen and you know something is going to happen. The challenge here is could I do it in a way that kept it as fresh as I tried to keep the rest of the movie. So the device I used was the record and the sound of the record. So I hope it worked for you. One of the exciting things about seeing this the first time with a research audience, which was in Scottsdale, Arizona. It's, it's exciting for a filmmaker to see 500 people jump all at once. Sometimes we're asked if our films are manipulative and exploitational. I think this is a very amusing question because what film isn't? 
because we are manipulating and we are making it up. And this is not life. This is an imitation of life. So anything that produces an emotion in you that's false is, of course, a manipulation and exploitation. I think the question is, have we done it well? He's not in the closet. Maybe he's not home. Maybe he's at church. This song is by Aphex Twin, and this is one of the gifts of insomnia when you're creating a movie and you can't sleep and you turn on MTV in the middle of the night where they show some videos that they can't show during prime time. And I don't know if you've ever seen the video for Come to Daddy, but it's, it's a work of art. It's brilliant and terrifying. And when I heard this song, I knew that it would be perfect for this scene. Uh, shooting in this graveyard was um, very, very, very difficult because it was the coldest night in the entire making of this movie. And this, of course, is Chris and Nick, but some of the stunts of course are done by the stun people because um, they are trained to not get hurt when they do some of the falls. And literally, the rain was, whenever we would shut off the rain machines, the water would be turning to ice right on their clothes and on their bodies. That's how, that's how cold it was on these particular nights. Some of this scene was reproduced locally in California in a, in a cemetery, not because it was <laughs> too cold in New York, but because um, this is a Catholic cemetery and they would only allow us to shoot a certain amount of what we needed there. Um, they did not want us to shoot the whole scene there, probably because of the violence, I would assume. This for me and for many people who have seen the film is the most terrifying moment because he is so ordinary. And, you know, um, there was a gentleman, oh, it's disgusting, I called him a gentleman. There was a, a villain in Belgium who was a plumber, I think, and they found endless young women who had been tortured, murdered, filmed, buried on his property a couple of years ago and um, he was very much an ordinary person that you pass on the street all the time because I want to here's another example of um, the use of the Moroccan talent that uh, sound that the women use 
for all sorts of emotion. Here plays a kind of death tattoo at the same time that sound is used for celebration. So it was the right sound for this. Um, for me, one of the most important uh, elements of doing this film was that so often uh, all of us make films where death and the hero or heroine killing someone is treated very lightly and as a joke and, and we've all been guilty of it, certainly I have. What Andy Kevin Walker had built into this character and what Nick and I really worked on was this was a man who did not find it easy to kill and needed permission and then as you see here we'll never forget and I talked to Nick about The Deer Hunter for instance which is one of my favorite films and really showed basically ordinary people going into uh, an extraordinary war and coming back and some of them came back and some of them didn't but their lives were changed forever and here you see Nick bearing the scars of what he's done whether what he's done is right or not I'll leave that up to you to decide but we all know if we were to have chosen the path he did that it would leave scars on our soul. Is he damned forever? That, that would be up to God. But, uh, but will he go on with his life? Yes. Um, this close-up was Nick's idea, and it is to show very much, I think, a man who's come back from the war and is still remembering what he did because he hasn't healed yet. I know it would have been nice, as in most movies, if we had the family having a picnic and the Celine Dion song came up and the movie gave you some Prozac with it. But what the hey, huh? I think you're too grown up for that. In making this film, it was very evident that Mrs. Matthews and Nick needed closure because in many ways they had shared tearing each other's hearts and souls apart. And um, Amy's voice and this letter. Um, Dear Mr. Wells, thank you for writing me are quite stunning and then you know uh, once again you know you've just got a piece of paper put together by the prop department and um, Catherine Keener and Nick Cage and um, a cute baby and Michael Dana's great music and Robert Ellswit's great photography and you know that's the magic of film you know, we're just in a little yard in Yonkers, New York, and 
on a shitty day where we're trying to escape the rain and, you know, look at the emotion and the, look at what each one of these brilliant actors is bringing to these little moments. And um, Ingemar Bergman said that film uh, begins with the human face. Um, I also think it ends with it. So uh, thanks for um, taking this journey with us and uh, sleep well. <laughs>